Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. A long, long time ago, in a land where very few people had even heard the words climate change so much as muttered from their Sony Walkman radios, Steve Coward, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, began his first broadcast of Living on Earth, a groundbreaking, inspiring, and information-packed environmental radio show. That was in 1991, the same year an amateur videographer captured the horrific beating of Rodney King by LAPD, and the same year Exxon was forced to pay $1 billion to clean up the Exxon Valdez oil spill in Alaska. In other words, it was the beginning of a whole new chapter in American history, and Steve Kerwood has, through more than 1,500 episodes, been our collective environmental chronicler and conscience. Today, Living on Earth is broadcast through 300 national public radio affiliates in the U.S. and is expanding into podcasting. In the early days, Living on Earth was like an underground or pirate radio station because the content was so radical compared to mainstream environmental coverage. 1991 was only three years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and it felt like the secret police was still very uncomfortable with what Steve was saying. And for Steve... That was nothing new. From an early age, his single black mom and Quaker faith instilled in him a quiet, forceful willingness to question authority and pursue the truth. Before radio, Steve Kerwood was a print and TV journalist. I start by asking Steve about a story that he broke in which the outwardly progressive Polaroid company was selling the South African apartheid government the camera and film equipment used to underpin their racist passbook program. What was going on at Polaroid there? Edwin Land, the guy who invented the Polaroid system, had hired an amazing art photographer by the name of Ken Williams and his associate, his partner, Caroline Hunter. And so African-American, and they're working in Polaroid, and they see that the ID2 system, the kind of system that was being used to make driver's licenses, was being used in South Africa. They saw these contracts going by because Land had brought them to the executive suite. I was writing with Boston Phoenix at the time, and uh, they approached me to tell me about this story. And they also were able to get Bob Maynard, who was working at the Pennsylvania Gazette. So here are two African-American journalists, and they told us this was going on. And it was an eye-opener, because Cambridge near MIT was so intricately involved with apartheid. It was, whoa. So it was a big story, and it had a major impact. These guys were calling for the boycott of Polaroid because of this. And this is the beginning of the, of the boycott in South Africa here in the U.S. Which is huge. Um, Looking back at that story, it, it did feel like it broke open the relationship between the U.S. and companies and this regime in, in South Africa that we think of in like these bygone terms. But it was not long ago that apartheid was alive in, in South Africa. And, and it just felt like that story played a really big big, important role. You know, looking back, it did. And Ed Land would never give an interview on this. So a few years later, I'm working uh, in, in public television, WGBH. He had a big press conference 
And I was there with my television camera at that point. And I was very polite when I finally stood up and asked Mr. Land, what about apartheid in South Africa? And it was interesting to see him literally change colors. And he just kind of blanched at the whole notion and stammered a bit. That wasn't the story that day, but I tucked the tape away. Two years later, when South Africa gets finally, the U.S. and companies say that they are going to deal with this, and Polaroid says that it's getting out. I pulled this piece of tape out, and I played it. There's a black-oriented public affairs program on WGBH. It's called Say Brother. That broadcast was supposed to happen on a certain date, and my wife and I are sitting in front of the, the telly, waiting for the tape to roll up. You know, it's kind of nice to watch things that you've worked on for a while. And instead, there's a rerun. I'm told, somehow by mistake, the tape got erased and reused. Wow. And I said to GBH, so I guess we're going to redo the show. And they, I didn't get an answer. Mm. So I had to literally walk out from the Say Brother production on this. A few months later, I finally redid the show. And we finally played this on the air. And at the same time, the advocates who were doing debates on South Africa and the first debate, I was followed home very obviously the surveillance. I mean, I would ride my bike over to, to WGBH. The people wanted to make sure that I knew that I was being tailed. We all got into the office and the phones were shut off. So I called my wife. I said, I don't know what's going on, but be very careful. It was an eye opener to me about the way that powerful governments interact with journalism and their ability literally to reach into the tape library, have us tailed. You know, it, it's so shocking that a company like Polaroid would have enough muscle and be scared enough about, you know, the threat that anti-apartheid activists and journalists like you would present that they would go in, take the tape. The whole thing just appalling, uh, unbelievable. Yeah. How did you get into journalism? Well, I guess I have to go way back. My mom uh, is academic, uh, she's a college professor, single mom. My dad died when I was pretty young, and um, I was the, the last of two children. So I was on my own a lot uh, on the college campus. This is Antioch College. And I read a lot. The library was my home, was my friend. When I joined a Boy Scout troop um, and they asked, could somebody write a little report about what our troop is doing? I said, yeah. And they literally would edit it with a pencil and then set it at the linotype and that would come out of a machine. I was totally fascinated. I says, oh my goodness, this is so much fun. I also got involved with radio as a kid. There was a public radio station there. They had us um, do radio drama. So by the age of 12, I had a wall and sack recorder I was dragging around and interviewing. People. Incredible. At 12. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I was 12, I think, when I did my first round of interviews. I got hooked. It's amazing because if you think about the continuity of your career, sound recording as a medium that transcends all other mediums has had incredible lasting power. It is. Sound is the basis of so much of our species. You hear something when you're inside your mother's tummy long before you see anything. We pass culture along by singing and speaking. Writing is just a representation of the spoken word. And when it comes to television, um, it can only see like one degree in front of you, whereas sound is 360 degrees. So at 
12, you're already carrying around a recorder and observing the world around you. And as a young black boy of 12 kind of coming into the newsroom, how did that occur to you? Were there role models or, or folks that mentored you? Like, how, how did that happen? The Antioch College campus was a very interesting and diverse community. Mm. And the music director on campus was African-American by the name of Walter Anderson. I walked into Walter's studio one day, and there at the piano is Eddie Fisher. I don't know, husband number what to Elizabeth Taylor? I'm trying to remember. But it was that kind of community. Coretta Scott King had been there as an undergraduate just before our time. Systemic racism is everywhere. So if I hadn't been in in a place like that, I certainly probably would not have been encouraged. And then you had incredible success in your career. You won a Pulitzer for the work you did on education. You've done shows on, you know, opera. What were the threads that then led you, Steve, um, in 1991 to, to come up with the show Living on Earth? So I was fortunate enough that when I was involved with NPR, I became aware of what was going on in the, in the climate. Probably the summer of 89, I went to visit a guy named George Woodwell, who was uh, yeah. researching this stuff. And when he told me that if we allowed this to get out of hand, the high Arctic would start to warm. It would release methane that would make us warmer, which would lead to more methane being released, which would make us warmer. We'd be in a runaway reaction. And having been a journalist who worked at the Boston Globe under Tom Winship, who I think there were 17 Pulitzer Prizes on Tom's watch as editor of the paper. It's a pretty amazing record. Who said, that the Constitution mentions the press because if you don't have an informed public, you're not going to have an informed electorate. And when I began to understand that climate disruption could be an existential threat, I said, this is a much bigger story than the usual thing. If we don't get the climate thing right, nothing else will matter for our civilization. There are many, many, many important things. So as a journalist, I said, I got to do this story because nobody was doing it. When you started the show was at the very beginning of people's consciousness about climate. There's another aspect as a journalist that drew this to me when I saw how little people were paying attention to it. As a black man in white America, you get used to the establishment trying to marginalize and say, oh, it's not important. There's certain rules that they need to follow, just as black people are. Well, if you follow the rules, you will do nothing. So you have to break the rules. And I knew that covering this stuff is not going to be popular in terms of ratings or getting uh, underwriters. But I knew that the truth shall set you free. So that if we could get at this truth and do it in enough time that we could free ourselves from the trajectory that, uh, that we were setting ourselves up for. And did, did the folks, the higher-ups at NPR, were they... It was like a hard sell. I had worked for a while at NPR, and so I knew people. And I said, we're not going to do this as an NPR show. We're going to do this as, an, as a show acquired by NPR. So I'll go out and raise the money, and I'll get the people together. You distribute the show for us, but otherwise you're going to leave me alone. The actual meeting that I got permission to develop the show uh, was a very simple one. I said, hey, this is what I want to do. And he said, hey, this is, yeah, sounds good. Do it. Go ahead. I mean, it, it feels like there's been such an intentional blindsiding of environmental issues in, in mainstream journalism. And largely that's made it the newsroom where, you know, hurricanes aren't really connected to climate change or 
fertility rates aren't connected to endocrine disruptors. And so to have that support at the beginning, I mean, set, set you kind of on a good course. I deeply appreciate it. There were folks that, that recognized this vision. And even though it was hard for NPR itself at times, for example, when during the, the second Bush administration, the White House leaned pretty hard on, on NPR to include climate the skeptics, the, the scientific skeptics in the coverage. And that was a pretty rough period of time. If, if I'd been in-house, they would have killed the show at that point. But I ended up changing distributors at that point. I went to what's called PRI, now PRX. It's amazing. How many shows have you done on Living on Earth? You just celebrated your 30th anniversary. Well, how, how many shows of is the, that? Roughly. 1,560. Which is just unbelievable amount of content and thought and guests and creativity that goes into week after week, month after month, year after year. How is your sense of the narrative arc of the journey that you're on change. The big difference was that when we were talking about climate, this was something that was in the future. This was something that science is saying, if we keep going this way, we're going to have this kind of reaction. There wasn't the, as much of a partisan divide on the issue. So certainly that characterized the first decade back in the day. Fully 14% of the general public cared about the subject of, of, of hearing more about climate disruption. And I have to say, by the way, producers who've worked on this, who have had to look into the abyss of where we're going, it's been very, it's very hard emotionally. But one of the things I got in this first decade was a gift by the name of E.O. Wilson. So Wilson is the Harvard biologist who, who's come up with the biophilia hypothesis, that since we evolve with all these other species, we need them to be around us. And in fact, it's healing power to be out in green, to be out with other species. And one of the things that my professor mom had done back in the day was that she'd purchased a small farm in southern New Hampshire, mostly trees on it. There's 30 acres. I live there now. Mm. So as the depressing news would come, I get to have a walk there every day, literally, with my dog. Occasionally there's moose. There's all kinds of birds. There's actually had a bear drinking out of our pond. And it, it would renew me because it's exhausting to look at it and say, oh. God, we're really setting ourselves up for disaster here. And to, and to then be recording each little piece of the disaster that comes. Climate disruption, other environmental problems is what will drive people off the land. And when people get driven off their own land and they want to come on somebody else's land as a species, we're not awfully friendly to that. And I always love hearing from the more conservative types who are asking questions about, you know, trying to verify something that they've heard. Because then I feel like we are doing an educational job. That's really powerful. Because we need more people to get on board for this. Because it's a fundamental change we're asking people to make. It's huge. And to that point, I mean, it is, the, it is a big difference between radio and podcasting. Podcasting kind of concentrates people on the things they're already interested in. But you are able to reach people who are just listening. They're driving home. They're cooking. And radio is still kind of a great equalizer. I don't know what the answer is in the podcast world. Hopefully it is to have enough podcasts that have enough visibility that are across a spectrum of things so that somebody's curiosity can be piqued about this so that then they'll want to go deeper. Okay. So Al Gore comes as the vice president. Did it feel at that time like there was a lot of hope? It was still a very bipartisan sense. What happened in your estimation over that 
ten, first 10 year period to make it more of a polarized political issue. One of the things that happened though, that Al Gore felt that it was too risky for him really to go heavy on the climate inside the Clinton administration. Al Gore uh, found himself in a very difficult position. So in 1997, the Kyoto Protocol comes together, and it's clear from the maneuvering that was done by Robert Byrd and Chuck Hagel in the Senate uh, that there could be no agreement that A, would put the U.S. at commercial disadvantage, and B, the developing countries had to go first, which was such an insult to the developing countries. Well, it's hard to accept a treaty to this day. And so half of Half of what needed to happen under Kyoto also didn't happen that day. It got kicked down the road to a later session in the year 2000. Unfortunately, the, the, the Clinton-Gore administration moved forward with wanting to claim all this credit for the afforestation. We're growing trees like crazy in the United States, and we should have credit for that. Well, not only the developing countries, the, the Brits and much of Europe threw up their hands. They said, really? You want the U.S. to get credit for growing trees when you guys have got smokestacks and all this kind of stuff? Give me a break. It's very hard to campaign at the national level if the, at that time, if the fossil fuel industry hates you. But then what happened is that the fossil fuel industry said, you know, these Democrats are dicey. And so you get people like Charles Koch and his brother David, but they started actually organizing to make sure that down the road... So by the time we get to Obama and the prospect of what we call Waxman-Markey happening, it was well-organized. It was well-organized to make sure that it would fail. So that was in um, 2009. And I think the, the American Clean Energy and Security Act, which, as you mentioned, was also called the Waxman-Markey Bill after its two primary authors. And, and it, it proposed this cap-and-trade system for the U.S. and was amazingly approved um, with the help of Speaker Pelosi by the House, but never got brought to the floor of the Senate for a vote. The Kochs particularly were really smart about how they organized this. They said, you know, don't worry about the House. We'll just make sure that we can stop it in the Senate. Uh, and we just made sure that the, wor the word went out, though, among Republicans on the House side, don't vote for this thing, because Waxman-Markey was a straight Democratic vote. So, by the year uh, 2010, it was very clear that it had been organized on a Democrat versus Republican basis. Very smart tactics, by the way, by the fossil fuel industry to set it up that way. Interesting. Do you think of subjects and then find great guests? Do you find great guests that then lead you to the subject? How do you think about the evolution of the narrative that you're trying to project in this business, there's a tsunami of information coming at us all the time. We have an editorial process where we really try to do some critical thinking about things that we might go after. And, you know, we obviously have to pay attention to the news, but we're not a daily show and we can't do breaking news. One way that's, that people do connect to the natural world in a fun way, so we spend a fair amount of time looking at we'll call an animal story or an outside story or a plant story because it provides some relief from sometimes the doom and gloom. When I initially went to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, they told me, you're going to run out of stories, Steve, in six months. You'll be dying on Earth. <laughs> God. And so, funny thing is, we haven't run out of stories, no. and we're very much still living on Earth. So, 
So one of the things that's evolved in the last 30 years has been the environmental justice movement. And yes. that movement has been incredibly important to, to shaping the narrative that we're in now. But how have you seen that evolution and, and how have you covered the story? 80% of the world is brown. 80%, much of the world's most important natural resources are in parts, the parts of the world that are brown. And yet we have this huge imbalance with a rich part of the world, which is largely white. And it's been extractive and either extracting my ancestors from Africa. You know, somebody wants to come up with a formula for reparations. Let's just say that 10 million people were taken from, from Africa. What are those lives worth? 10 million. I mean, it's billions of dollars that could be paid and actually more people were taken. And reparations just for stealing people from the land. From day one, really, before I even started doing the Enviro show, I understood that on a global basis, we have this huge imbalance that gets expressed in this environmental exploitation and resource exploitation. It's a product of systemic racism. And so... I've been grateful that people like Bob Bullard have been able to document and put forward the details of how this is, is working. We've left out a majority of the world. And so environmental justice happens in my backyard or, or you know, near, nearby if there's dirty buses spewing their tailpipes where kids are going to school. But writ large, around the world, it's a matter of environmental justice. Mm. But the truth is, is that we're all at risk. We are all at risk. So if we see this disparity, if, if we see where people and more often corporations are acting in this extractive way, they're taking it from all of us. Mm. As a society, what is done to the least of us is actually getting done to all of us when it comes to the climate. I am so thrilled that we're paying attention to environmental justice because it brings us to the point of the spear of the degradation that's being done because it's just so obvious in less advantaged communities. The rest of the world's kind of caught up to you, Steve, over this 30 years. I mean, it, it's been way slower than any of us would have wanted. You've been at the front of covering environmental issues. Like, how does that influence how you see the show? Does it make you think about you know, the, the role that Living on Earth plays differently now that everyone from CNN to the BBC to the New York Times are, are building up reporting and staff. And like, this is now the flavor du jour. Everyone wants to cover the environment. And like, how is that affecting how you see the show? Well, we have a lot to do because when people respond on flavor du jour, it's not necessary for the best reasons. For example, the New York Times can't be trusted on this story wasn't so long ago that they trashed their whole environmental division. So we're not getting, yeah, a lot of people have come to the climate party, but the stories that are being written about it are, in my view, aren't going to where uh, I think you could have the most influence, the, the, as I say, the tip of the spear to make a change. So, I mean, in some ways that's predictable given, given the, the pace of journalism, like we're on news cycles that are, you know, now in the minutes, not in days. And, and, you, uh -huh. and you get the time to still think. One of the things I noticed, um, and, and you did this for your 30th anniversary show, your own almost spiritual focus on the interconnectedness of all of life and nature, and whether it's the concept of biophilia or just your own sense of of where you are in New Hampshire now. Tell us about, about how you view your place in the world. I think that it's important for us to not see our satisfaction as to how 
high our pile of money is as to how well are we fitting into what some would call creation, what some call nature, um, our place here. And I think it's interesting, by the way, that some folks and the most extractive folks put focus on money, and yet money has no value if it's outside of a society, right? You're in the middle of the desert, and you have, you know, like a huge gold bar, and there's no water. I mean, how are you going to drink? A lot of people have woken up to the existential threat of climate. That understanding that uh, just blind extraction for economic development for the few is not going to be helpful to us. And fortunately, the notion of environmental justice puts a spotlight on, on things simply being done for the few. Things need to be done for the many. Really, for all of us have a right to be here. All of us. And not just to survive, but to thrive. And, you know, sometimes I'm un I feel uncomfortable at the level of privilege that I have. I can walk out my back door in the summer. I can ski out my back door in the winter and enjoy the bounty of nature. And I want everybody to have that privilege because that's out in nature is where you really get to feel truly human, I think. A sense of humility at the vast scale of everything when you're in the mountains or you're at the shore. An appreciation for the beauty that's there. I mean, these are all things that we don't get inside the glass and concrete towers, um, looking at the flickering screen as to how our stock portfolio is doing. As many kind of folks are looking to you for leadership and, and as they begin their environmental journalism career, like what, what would you give them as advice as starting out? Stay curious. Keep up your connection to nature. Stay in touch with what it means to be a human being. Uh, don't doubt yourself even though people give you a hard time because you have brown skin. That's their problem. It's not your But just be careful not to make it your problem because you mouth off to the wrong cop who pulls you over, you know, you could end up dead. But to the extent that you can, ignore that kind of BS and just move forward. You know, there's a whole bunch of, of mystery about how, what is the meaning of life? Why are we here? Uh, a lot of people ask, is there a God? Some people say, ah, oh, there can't be a God. Other people say, how could we have something this complex without a God? And those are great questions to look at. And nature is probably the best evidence for any one of those opinions. A huge thank you for Steve Kerwood for talking with Podship Earth today. Steve's wisdom, compassion, tenacity, and journalistic excellence inspired an entire generation, including me, to use the medium of radio and podcasting to sound the alarm around climate change. Through tackling tough issues from environmental racism to fossil fuel disinformation campaigns to the impact of toxic chemicals on reproduction, Steve has still remained optimistic. His positivity, fueled through connecting with nature, has helped listeners both have a reason to fight and the energy to do so. In a world in which power often seeks to corrupt and bend information to suit the agenda of polluting industries, Steve and his team at Living on Earth are a beacon of trust and hope. Please go to loe.org, short for Living on Earth, loe.org, where you can listen to the show. They're funded through individual donations. I just gave them a hundred bucks and it was the best retail therapy I've engaged in all year. Thank you again, Steve. You're my hero. 
And thanks to each of you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, aren't you glad we're living on Earth? Thank you.